Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, last Sunday, as we finished up our weekly gathering, uh, we kind of came out, um, you know, finally maybe turned our phones um, back on, or at least hopefully do not disturb off. Um, we we uh, headed out into our week and, and were met with the news as we checked in with our phone um, of the just then release news of the death of um, beloved uh, NBA star Kobe Bryant. Uh, As the day went on, updates revealed the scope of the news um, of this helicopter crash in Calabasas that uh, took not only the lives of Kobe Bryant, but eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. Now, it's hard to adequately summarize uh, the weight of someone like Kobe Bryant and what he carried in the city of Los Angeles, especially uh, for many of us who are not natives to L.A. I mean, this man spent his entire career here. And so for many people of our city and even many people in our church, they spent years, even decades, watching this man play multiple times a week. For some, Kobe, the Lakers, and basketball is wired deep within their experience of a family, of what it means to be who I am. Watching games sitting in their dad's lap or sitting on the couch with their siblings, or as I read in the paper this morning, uh, one grandfather's obsession with the Lakers and him sitting on the same spot on the couch every single week with the same brand of beer and then depending on win or loss, would take his grandkids out for ice cream. And so that's why they always were (laughs) hoping for a win. Kobe was a relentlessly driven and talented player, uh, but with that talent, uh, was often uh, seen as a selfish player who irked some basketball purists. And of course, as many of us know, the off-court issue that tainted his career for years to come. But seemingly rebounding uh, from this in these later years, he came uh, to be seen as as not just the NBA superstar that everyone knows, but as a proud, committed father of four girls, uh, boldly exploring a post-NBA life with the same fearlessness that he applied in his playing days. And so for those of us, maybe you're here, and and right now the fact that we're talking about Kobe Bryant on a Sunday in a church gathering, and you're like, are you kidding me? This is... This, this seems to be some kind of a, an overreaction, or, or maybe we're just looking for something to be sad about. I would just, I would just invite you. Um, on one level, I was totally with you. Um, come Sunday afternoon. This is really, really sad news, but the weight that it's carrying, it just seems like, okay, come on. Are we just like looking for reasoning to cry about? Is that just what you know, social media has done to us, where we're looking for some new thing uh, to drive our attention to our devices? What, what's going on here? I was totally with you until... On Tuesday, uh, Pastor Lorenzo and I uh, went down to the Staples Center um, and were able to walk around Xbox Plaza that had become, in, in, in huge ways, just this giant vigil for Kobe Bryant. Huge poster boards with people signing um, these, these thanks and gratitude for Kobe. People literally running out of place on these poster boards and beginning to just write on the pavement itself. Um, flowers upon flowers and candles on candles, almost this religious quietness that was sitting over Xbox Plaza as you had men and women openly weeping in public uh, at the loss of Kobe Bryant. I mean, for, for this city, this man meant something that even those of us outside of the city um, have some grasp on but may not have the full uh, measure of. I still remember my bright purple and gold poster of him in middle school, and I am by all counts not a sports guy. The simple reality is that whether or not our city may be overreacting, as some of you may think, or for those of you that have some deep experience of watching him play week after week, um, something like his, you know, making the two free throws when his Achilles uh, had been torn, that that this drove something within you, this kind of Mamba mentality, this 110% that you saw someone that was able to give that, and so you thought you could give that for yourself. Wherever you are in that midst, the simple reality 
is that for us as Christians, and for this as a gathering of Christians, we are commanded to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, and even more than that, to always be asking in whatever situation we're in, what, what is going on here? Where is God in the midst of this? And what is this moment inviting out of each and every one of us? And one of the things that I just want to spend some time on today as we take a break from Mark is that moments like this are important. Because moments like this break down and push back against our everyday life in our, master, in our Western modern world. That we have rhythms and methods of living and being that moments like this, when helicopter crashes happen, when there's uh, freak accidents, and specifically when it's the people that are successful and it seems like they're on top of the world, and we see that they are just as susceptible to time, chance, and death as us, it does something to us. Uh, Andrew Sullivan uh, by no means a Christian, wrote for New York Magazine uh, earlier last year. Uh, he said, our modern world tries extremely hard to protect us from experiencing existential moments. Netflix, air conditioning, sex apps, Alexa, KO, Pilates, Spotify, and Twitter, they're all designed to create a world in which we rarely get a second to confront ultimate meaning until a tragedy occurs, a death happens, or a diagnosis strikes. And so the thing is, with someone as popular as Kobe Bryant, when something happens to someone like that, that what it does for all of us is um, the, the, the kale gets left in the fridge and wilts, which is normally what happens to kale in our home. But uh, that, that, we, that, that, that Twitter no longer becomes the thing that we're arguing about, but it becomes something where the main thing is that we're all having in some way this slight existential crisis that the rules that we thought of success and the good life do not seem to measure up for each and every single one of us. And so this week, for many in our city, as much as it has been the loss of an icon and legend, as, as one man put it, the king of L.A., for all of us, it's been a confrontation with the uncertainty of life, the scary reality of living in a world that doesn't seem to play by our rules of success, happiness, and the long life but the deep and scary and frightening reality that time, chance, and death, these things that seem like glitches in the system of reality seem to be behind the reins of this world. And for each and every one of us, that one day it's going to fade to black and your life will be over. Moments like this remind us of that. The terror of watching someone being taken at 41 years old with a 13-year-old with this family of fathers and, and mothers and children and coaches, that it makes the reality that, that these are just normal people and I'm like normal people. And, and although I might not be getting in helicopters anytime soon, there are people, this happens on a daily basis. It's just the popular people that we all know. And that's why we resonate so much with it. And so as this is where much of our city is and many of us are this week, like I said, I thought it'd be worthwhile for us to press pause on Mark's gospel and to find some common ground with an ancient Jewish book of poetry called Ecclesiastes. It's an existential crisis in a 12-chapter plate. Ecclesiastes 1, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there uh, or um, tap your way to Ecclesiastes. Um, it'll also be on the slides behind us um, as we read the opening poem of this letter. Ecclesiastes 1, and we'll read through uh, the entire chapter, and then I'll pray for our time together. Ecclesiastes 1, the book opens. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man 
And that's just the word for, for, for human. What does a human, what does a person gain by all their toil? What do you and I gain by all that which we toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and the sun hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. God, we read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and it feels so out of place in the Bible. Uh, for many of us, we open the Bible, or we come to church looking for encouragement, looking for um, something to put a little pep in our step as we go back into our week. And Ecclesiastes, your word speaking through the preacher confronts us with the reality that we live in a world that has this glitch of vanity, of time, chance, and death in the system. And so we ask today that you might wake us up that we might uh, learn how to live in this world. Point us uh, into wisdom and into life. In your name we pray, amen. Well, to summarize the book of Ecclesiastes, um, here in this first chapter, you'll see um, there in verse two, this, this uh, five times repeated word, vanity of vanity, vanities, all is vanity, five times in just one little verse. It goes on to be repeated uh, almost uh, just under 40 times through these, this little 12-chapter uh, book of poetry. It is the running theme throughout this book that everything is vanity. It's vanity of vanities is what he says. And the word that we translate as vanity, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to see, but um, it, it's this uh, Hebrew word that, that's quite rare and enigmatic as the thing that it's talking about itself. This word, if you look um, in verse 2, if you have a Bible that has footnotes in it, you'll see a little uh, number 2 right next to the vanity. And it's called a footnote. Those are really helpful sometimes when you're trying to understand what the Bible's saying. But if you follow that too down into the footnotes, what it talks about, it's this Hebrew word hevel or hevel that's being translated out from the Hebrew. And if you look at various different translations from the Hebrew into the English, you'll see language like uh, vanity, like we see here in the English standard that we read from. Or if you have the NIV, it goes as far to say meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. One of my favorites is absurdity of absurdities, everything's absurd. The Hebrew word is often used, hevel, to talk about a mist or a vapor or a breath. It's to talk about something that is a thing, and yet you can't really get your hands on it. Like mist, you can't put it in a bottle and take it home, save it on the shelf for later. You can't grab it. You can't collect it. Throughout the rest of the book, he talks about uh, this life of chasing after things that are hevel. It's like chasing after the wind. It is something fleeting and elusive. This is the big idea of the book in its introduction. He says, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors, smoke of smoke, everything is fleeting. It is uh, beautiful, but it is enigmatic. It is absurd. You can't get your head around something that is but isn't, that as soon as you reach out to touch it, it slips through your fingers. He says, 
that everything is like this. The way he describes it is by giving us this poem. And in the opening there of verse three, he gives us that, that this hevel, this vanity of vanities, he says that everything is vanity. Everything is hevel. Verse three, he says, what do we gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun? This is the big question of life. What do you get for all of your toil, all of your work? What do you get at the end of it all? What do humans get out of this life? What is ultimately achieved by life's activities? What difference does it make when all is said and done? When your eyes close for the last time and your, your lungs expel oxygen for the last time, not to bring them back in, when your heart beats its last, what do you get from all of this toil? What difference is there to show for a lifetime of work, of working your fingers down to the bone? What's the point of giving 110% with nothing more to give, giving the free throws when the Achilles heel is torn or even more painful? What is there to show for getting up again at 4 a.m. trying to put your toddler back to bed? What is there to show for all of this? The book of Ecclesiastes says, through the structure of the poetry of verses 4 through 11, that everything is heaven. All you get out of it is smoke, vapor. You see, he does this through this poem where uh, for us, when we write poetry, we, we normally do things like uh, roses are red and violets are blue. We rhyme sounds. In Hebrew poetry, they'll do sounds, but they also will rhyme themes regularly. And so this, this form comes together of what the poem's saying. You'll see it behind me when he says that all is hevel. In the first verse and the last verse, uh, not that one. You're okay. Um, the, the title verse, uh, you're good. That one, thank you. Um, what he says here is um, that in the first verse and the last verse, he begins and ends by talking about the reality that nothing is lasting. In the second and the second to last section of the poem, he talks about how nothing is significant. And at the center, what is the most harrowing and most terrifying is the reality that nothing is um, satisfying. Sorry, the significant is before that satisfying is in the middle. And so the question is, what do I gain for all of my life here under the sun, all of my toil, all of my work? And the preacher says, you get nothing lasting, nothing satisfying, and nothing significant. Happy Sunday. <laughs> now let's see what he, how he does this. Look at me in verse 4 and verse 11. Well, what does he say in verse 4? In verse 4, he says, what? Thinking about the fact that all is vanity, it's all hevel. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but what? The earth remains forever. And then down in 11, he says, there's no remembrance of former things. You'll see a little footnote there. Again, if you have your Bible, the word translated as things can also be translated as people, which makes this passage a little bit scarier. There's no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after. What he first says is there's nothing lasting, that all is hevel. We are born, and if we are lucky, we have a handful of decades before it ends. Watching Kobe uh, interviews or talking to people this week, one of the surprising things that came forward was uh, so regularly that the first emotion that people felt was not sadness, it was disbelief. I just, I can't believe it. And on one level, like, it's a harrowing thing that we see that's happened, terrifying, awful thing that we've seen. And yet, why, is, why, why can we not believe it when something like this happens? What system of belief here under the sun, as the poet would say, gives you any reason not to be surprised when people die? You see, what he says is people come and go. They're short-lived, 
and short remembered, but the earth is here forever. If you still don't believe me, here's the question. Who was your great-great-grandpa? And if you use Ancestry.com, it's cheating. (laughs) What was your great-great-grandpa's name? Maybe you know his name. What was he like? What What did he do for a living? What were his hobbies? Was he a gentle, kind person, rough and tumble? What was he like? What sort of man was your great, great grandpa? What were his accomplishments? Who were his friends? Did he drive a car? What kind of clothes did he wear? What was his favorite meal? That wasn't that long ago. And we, and you wouldn't be here without him. (laughs) And none of it's remembered. His, he and his memory are hevel. Vapor, breath, fleeting. You see, the reality is within the fact that nothing is lasting, that there is a, even for those of us that reach the highest levels of fame, that let's say we get to the status of being a hero where people look up to us and go, that's what I want to become. And whether you're Kobe Bryant or whatever actor, whatever business, like whatever it is, you look at that sort of person And you say, I want to be like them, that hero. Heroes eventually, they die and they become legends. So the new hero can come in. And then as those legends go on, they end up becoming myths. As the new heroes become the legends and new heroes come in. And what happens to myths? Myths at best, at best, one day will be a difficult question on Trivial Pursuit. That's the reality of the world that we live in without, you know, Trivial Pursuit being here. He says, even at the greatest levels of fame and honor and everything that you could want for, where people praise you when you walk in the room, you have all the honor, all the respect, at best, one day, oh, don't tell me. It begins with a, oh, man, don't tell me, don't tell me. Like, and you're trying to like, look at your phone underneath the table. <laughs> at best, a difficult question. The preacher invites you and me to take all of our ambitions, all of our dreams, all of our accomplishments, and to go out to the beach and place them before the Pacific Ocean and see if it cares. To go before the mountains, to look up at the moon at night and see if she gives a rip about all of your hopes and all of your concerns. She's been here for years and years and years and generations. The Pacific Ocean, the waves have been coming in and out years and years, generations, and they're going to keep doing it. But you'll be here and gone. A memory for a little while, and at best, a difficult question on a board game. All of life is hevel, it is brief, it is short, it is fleeting, it is hasty and hurried, it's temporary, it's momentary, it's transient. There is nothing lasting. The preacher then moves on, not just that everything is, uh, does not last, but it is not significant. Look with me in verse 5 and 6, and then we'll jump down to 9 and 10, where he says that the sun rises and then the sun goes back down. And then the sun hastens. I love that it says it, it, it hustles. It says it uh, running without breath. <gasps> the sun whoo, gets back up and then he rises again. The wind blows down to the south and the wind goes around to the north and the wound and around the wind goes on its circuits, the wind returns. Then if you jump down to 9 and 10. You see, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what's going to be done. And really there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said? See, this is new. It's been already in the ages before us. You see, all 
of life is Hevel for the preacher. Everything is just a continuation of or a part of these continuing cycles of reality. The sun and wind, we get some, you know, every single morning we get out the cup of coffee, I'm going to go and watch the sunrise. We're standing at the beach and we're taking in the beauty of the sunset. We're posting it on Instagram for everybody. When the wind comes or the weather's really nice and we can like see like the landscape today because there's no smog, like we're like, oh, this is incredible. The preacher's like, yeah, it's been doing that forever and it's going to do that long after you're dead. It's like, quit take wasting time with Instagram. Like, nobody cares, right? I do like you guys' sunset pictures, though. That, that's, I'm not the preacher. You see, what he says is that humanity, too, there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing truly significant, nothing truly changing. At best, things are tweaks. Things are little adjustments and changes. You see, in a few months, they're going to come out with this brand new iPhone, and, uh, and it's going to be incredible. And it's going to like, you know, now it's not your face. It's like tongue ID. And you lick it and you open it or something like that. And it's going to be incredible. And we're all going to freak out and we're all going to love it. And, and, re- and uh, what's going to happen is within a few months, we're going to go, oh, wait, this is the exact, this is basically the same thing. There's a couple adjustments. You know, the battery life's a little bit better or whatever, right? But it's the same exact thing. And now it comes in whatever dumb color. And, but the reality is, is that we, here we are with iPhones. We get all excited and, and huge amounts of money that we spend on them and debt and attention that we give to these stupid things. And, and line over line, year after year, th- these phones have all just been little adjustments of one another, little changes. And that initial one that blew you know, everybody's socks off was really just a better version of the BlackBerry, Right? And the BlackBerry was just like a little bit better version of what was the greatest cell phone of all time, the Motorola Razor, (laughs) which to this day. um, But and the thing is, is that all of this goes back is that phones, I mean, what you have is you just follow down the line of you go from microchips and processors and what's going on there is just a little tweak. It's a little bit better than than desktop computers and desktop computers are a little just bit a bit, a little bit better, a little bit smaller than these giant computers that took up rooms this size. And really, those, those big computers are just, you know, it's a little bit of a tweak, a little bit of a change on um, a typewriter, right? Where now it's doing it for me. And, and typewriters are really just, a, you know, it's a little bit better, a little bit smaller version of the printing press. And the printing press is just a, a little bit better version of, of paper and getting paper out, which is really just a change of, of papyrus. And papyrus is really just kind of a change on hieroglyphics. And hieroglyphics is really just a tweak on language, So all the way down history, we get all excited. Look how far we've come. We're just learning how to talk differently and faster and more loudly. But really, there's no difference. That's what he's getting at is in all of our excitement. I mean, here we are in Los Angeles. Every single, like, billboard and movie that we see, oh, I can't wait. This time, the superheroes win again. Like, (laughs) it's the same movie. Like, even Lion King, everybody got frustrated because the latest Lion King, it felt like it was just like shot-for-shot shot remake of the original. Nobody remembers that that was just Hamlet with animals. <laughs> we're telling the same stories. We're singing the same songs. We're, 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 we're freaking out over the same gadgets. And what the preacher wants to get you to see is that, that there's nothing truly significant and new. And so here we are all just stuck on our phones all day, pulling to refresh over and over again, waiting. Maybe this will be new. And we get just a tweak on something new. This time the sunset picture has a dog in it. And we get a little bit of a dopamine hit, and that makes us happy for five seconds. And then we go back. And then we see advertisements. Maybe this will make me happy. But it's all more of the same. There's nothing new under the sun. 
And even you as a human being, here's the reality. You are a snowflake, but not the way that most people would say. You are original if we look really, really, really close. But if we're honest, we're all kind of the same as everybody else. When you get enough of us around, it's kind of, you know, snowflakes all together. It's kind of a a nuisance. And it's going to be gone by the afternoon if you lived in Reno. For me, it was just gone. We don't even get snow here. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The reality is, is that that there's nothing new. There's nothing significant. And even you and I, with all of our God-given dignity and goodness, are here and gone. And so the preacher is calling you to wake up, but he's not done. He's not done. In verse 7 and 8, what does he say? All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they all there return and they flow back down again. All things, all things are full of weariness. Can I get an amen? amen. Why? Because we can't, we can't talk about it. We can't talk about the reality that the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is filled with hearing. At the center of the poem, the preacher laments that we cannot grab the vapor, that it dissipates into our hands. We cannot hold it. We cannot be satisfied. And this may be the hardest one of all. You see, we can be heartbroken at a short life. We can be bored with an insignificant one. But a life that is not satisfying is is what he goes on to say in the back half of this this, uh, book of poetry, the Ecclesiastes, is that there is an evil to it. Like the seas and the streams, like the rivers flowing into the ocean, that we are never filled. We are a vacuum of desire, and we are exhausted and weary from trying to fill it. So we clutch on to new gadgets, we run after new relationships, we go down new career paths, we try a new major, new pleasures, new vacation, and then as soon as we get it, we're over it. We don't even want to talk about it because it didn't get us what we want. And most of us are even mad that we reached for it in the first place. You see, the sad thing about this life is that our eyes, I mean, you never meet somebody that you, hey, we're going to go out and see a movie. And they go, I've seen enough movies. You know? Or like, hey, did you hear the new album? And they're like, I've heard enough music. I I think I've got it all down, right? I've read enough books. There's some of us that say that. But uh, he says they're never satisfied. And when you take it further than just your eye or your ear and you go even deeper, think about the deep reality that you are never satisfied. There's a reality that, that I will ne- my wife will never lean over to kiss me and I'll say, I've had enough kisses. I'm, I will never have enough hugs. Some of you aren't like touchy-feely people, whatever that might be. Enough eye contact, enough Saturdays at the beach. I will never have enough meals where I'm truly full. I am a, you and I are vacuums of desire. That we're just, it's, it's never, it never gets met. I cannot, fill in the blank. Buy enough things, go to enough vacations, fill my passport. I cannot make love enough times where I'm like, I'm good. I don't need that anymore. Thank you, though. We're never satisfied. And that's what he says is that we are mad. We don't want to talk about this reality. You see, the crazy of us are the ones that think that we can satisfy ourselves. And so we chase after whatever it might be. The maddest of us are those that don't see this driving desire of life, this vacuum within us. And so here you have within this little poem, the preacher says, nothing that we didn't already suspect was true when we're laying awake at night and we can't sleep. But here in in the daytime, when we're all awake, he makes us confront it. 
This is the world you live in, and what are you going to do about it? Have you truly seen that there's nothing lasting, there's nothing significant, there's nothing, nothing satisfying? Until you do not see this reality, you, you are living a delusion. Chasing after thinking that something will satisfy you, something will be significant and give you purpose for your life, or something will be lasting and you will always have it. The preacher says that all is hevel, it is all vapor, it is all smoke. There's nothing lasting, nothing significant, nothing satisfying. And so what can we, what can we do? The preacher says. He says that what we need is a, a calibration of our expectations. You see, the reality is that nothing is lasting. And so what you and I ought to do is treasure what we have while we have it. Whether your meal is one of the best places in town or you hastily eating ramen noodles over the sink like a raccoon. It's a personal experience. Whether it's the job that you hate, whether it's you getting in a fight with your spouse over the same thing, or your, your, your little toddler like talking back to you again, whatever it might be, your car breaking down, the job that you hate, the clothes that you don't want to wear, the food that you, whatever you might have that, that he just says, whatever you have, whether it's screaming toddlers or tiki drinks, enjoy it while you can because it's better than death. And that's coming by the way. The fact that nothing is significant, he just says, chill out and be content with what you have. And you're not that big of a deal. So chill out. Take yourself a little bit less seriously. Why waste the short breath of life that you have worrying about who cares about whatever? This is nothing significant because nothing is satisfying. Quit grasping and striving after things that you think will. Just receive what you have as a gift. Towards the end of the book, in verse uh, 7 through 10 of chapter 9, he says all of this in one little section. He says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. That's a way of talking about, just, you know, where, where are the clothes that you wanna wear? Wear good, good clothes. Let not your oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and the toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Go, go work, go, you know, ambit, whatever it might be, your career, chase after those things. But why? Not because they're satisfying or lasting or significant, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. You're going to die. So let's just enjoy it. It's this Zen way of being that I admit I, I struggle with finding. Robert Shorten, in his book, uh, A Time to Be Born, A Time to Die, he writes, there can never be real final hope for one unless they first face and fully take into account the utter hopelessness of death. No one can really find peace in life unless they have first made their peace with death. You see, in order for us to live life with an open hand, for us to be present, to let go of expectations for the future and let go of our disdain for the past, all of those things revolve around us confronting and facing and looking head on at the reality of death and his cronies, time and chance, and making our peace with their presence. The preacher offers us a sense of peace and just letting it go and enjoying every single day that we have it. But is that it? Just to accept him. Well, there's wisdom here to be sure. But is that all that the Bible, I mean, Ecclesiastes isn't on its own, thank God. Like that would be, 
Literally, thank God. Because um, if this was all that was in the Bible, we would just be like an emo um, religion. Um, which if you're emo, you're welcome here. Um, <laughs> Jesus loves you too. Uh, in the larger story of scripture, because we have Ecclesiastes that's surrounded by so many other books, what we have going on is, is that not simply does Ecclesiastes call us for a calibration of our expectations, but Ecclesiastes emerges within the Bible, not just to you know, calibrate expectations, but to create an anticipation. Because once we face and fully see death for all that it is and we quit pretending, we actually start to see our need for something that we can't get for ourselves. Robert Short, who we just wrote, read, he, um, he continues in the, the following pages. Within the larger context of the Bible, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian. That's a nice way to put it. Asking questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God and clearing the road for this revelation by smashing any and all false hopes to pieces. He shows us human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. You see, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, this, this poem and this whole book that, that, that you can go read this week, what he's trying to do is you and I are all building our lives up and our hopes and our anticipations and our expectations with these little uh, Duplo towers like my daughter has. And my daughter's favorite pastime is she'll sit in the corner and she'll call me or mom in, right? Come in, come in. What do you want to do? Like kitchen? No. She, she brings out the Duplos and she wants you to build a giant tower. And she sits and watches you. Like she just kind of like twiddles her thumbs. Yes, build me my tower. Um, and then, you know, you get, you use almost all the blocks. She waits patiently until you build the whole thing up. And then she walks over and she looks at you in the eyes and kicks it all and it falls and falls over. What Robert Short points out is that this poem is meant to be uh, like a little toddler for you to realize you are building your life with Duplos. And you're like, this time, you know, that's why as time went on with Emma kicking over towers, the first time I was so invested in this. I was like, it's a princess castle. And I'm like bringing people. And then she kicked it over and I'm like, oh, why was I wasting my time with all of these Duplos? In the same way that the book of Ecclesiastes and acknowledging that nothing is lasting, nothing is significant, nothing is satisfying, is not a call to nihilism where we don't build with the Duplo towers or some kind of hedonism where it's just like, I'm just enjoying the click of each sound. He still calls us to build something, but to lower your expectations and to say, it'd be great if this toddler would quit kicking things over. It'd be great to live in a world where Hevel wasn't in charge where time, chance, and death did not get the last word, that somebody showed up with like super glue for these things so that even the worst toddler could not separate it. In the same way that we talked about John the Baptist clearing and making straight the way of the Lord, preparing the people for Jesus to show up on the scene, the preacher of Ecclesiastes emerges as someone like John the Baptist, who he wants to call all of us to start to acknowledge and call a spade a spade about what we put our hopes in. So that he might point us to this guy, this person, this man named Jesus, who can actually fulfill everything that we're looking for. That vacuum of desire that nothing lasting, significant, or satisfying can seem to fit. And he points to this Jesus. Which is once again the miracle of what happens when Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Where we were for two weeks and now here we are again for three. Where Jesus came into Galilee, it says proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, this time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. 
So repent and believe the gospel. You see, the scandal of the Bible is not that we live in a world where time, chance, and death seem to be in charge, a world gone hevel. That's, there's no scandal there. Because you and I all know it. At least when the phone is turned off and we're awake at night or we're you know, in the shower, wherever it is that we don't have the distractions, that's when it really hits us. The scandal is not that we live in a world like this. The Bible is calling a spade a spade. This is the world that we live in. The scandal of Christianity is the claim that in history, in Galilee, 2,000 years ago, we had someone that walks up on the scene and starts saying that there's a new kingdom here. Not just a kingdom over Rome, but some kind of kingdom that's going to replace this reign and rule of heaven, where death rides as its king. This is the scandal of Christianity, is we have a God that doesn't look down at us where time, chance, and death and just says, if you guys maybe built the tower a little bit faster this time, tried a little bit harder, maybe then things would work out for you. The scandal of Christianity is the God who got down in the dirt and the mud of heaven and the mess of time, chance, and death and allowed it to get on him, for himself to choke on the smoke, as it were. And the even greater scandal is that the claim of Christianity is that death itself would be conquered by allowing death to conquer him. You see, one of the things that was happening on the cross with Jesus dying was Jesus allowing all of uh, of evil and chaos and violence and the danger and damage of this world and the sin that causes nothing to last or be significant or to satisfy, to expel its strength on him. For Jesus to breathe deep of this smoke that, 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 that suffocates us and allow it to kill him on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And the claim that this whole Christianity thing runs on is that three days later, the Jesus who died was, was raised and resurrected over death. You see, Jesus being raised over death is not just some kind of assurance that, that you can have life for eternity with him. But it is a claim that a world that's gone hevel, though hevel is all that there is, it will not be all that there is. And that one day, the world where all was hevel will one day be the world where all is heaven. Where the reign of God is there, where no longer is nothing lasting, but we are in a place that's eternal, where no longer is nothing significant, but as Jesus says at the end in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. And in a world where nothing is satisfying, Jesus says that in this new kingdom of heaven where we live in bodily raised physical existence forever with God and one another, that we will live in a world where we will truly be satisfied. Unlike we were ever able to find in this life. And this was being spoken about not just by some disciples hoping for something better, but by a bodily raised Jesus, a talking and walking and touchable and eating Jesus. And Jesus now is this risen king of heaven, the kingdom of God. He gives us this way of being and living where even while death still bites and death is in its death throes, that we have some sort of hope that is unlike anything anyone else has in this world. Like I said, though all is heaven, the message of Christianity is that all is becoming and all will be heaven. All will be saturated with the presence of God. Though we live in a world where nothing is lasting, Jesus means that regardless of what death may come after me, I have an assurance of eternity because of what Jesus has done. And as Paul says, that our labor and our work is not just kind of like what we preoccupy ourselves with before we die, 
But what the Apostle Paul says is that our labor is not in vain, that our labor, our work is not vanity, it's not heaven. Like I said, this significance, the satisfaction that you're looking for, the reality is, is that you can only find peace in life, as Robert Short said, if you've made your peace with death. And many of us have not made our peace with death. We hide behind kale. We hide behind Alexa or basketball or career or your work or your relationships or whatever it might be. There is something that you have as the thing that you think is your shield against time, chance, and death. And moments like what happened on that hillside in Calabasas last week is a reminder that there is no shield strong enough. And for you to truly make your peace with death, you have to deal with something. Otherwise, you'll spin off in nihilism or, or hedonism, self-destruction and destruction of those around you. You have to make your peace with death. And the only way to find peace in life is to make peace with death. And the only way to find any amount of peace with death is to believe that death itself will die. And the message of Christianity is that in in real time, in real space, 2,000 years ago, we're not just hoping, winging a prayer, we'll go somewhere when we die. We believe that death itself is going to be reversed. And this is what wakes us up. This is what gets us going. This is why the Apostle Paul makes crazy claims in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says that if, if the resurrection didn't happen then my preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. You're still gonna die. Why? Because if there's no resurrection, everything is still not lasting, not significant, or not satisfying. But if in real time, real space, 2,000 years ago, something happened and a grave was emptied, then that means that Hevel is no longer, it's on the run. And we can have peace in this life because we've made peace with death, because we have a peace that comes from a resurrected king. And so, in a moment, we're going to call as, as a moment of response for us. But the reality is, for those of you here that identify as Christians, that I'm going to remind you in a minute about this a little bit more and what you believe. The calling moment in a city like Los Angeles is that all times, but specifically moments like this, people see that nothing is lasting, nothing is significant, and nothing is satisfying. You and I have been given news that there is something that is significant, new, and lasting, and satisfying. And the movement of Jesus is that as he is resurrected and raised, he sends his disciples out to be witnesses that Hevel is no longer in charge. And that's what you and I have been tasked with. Not only to proclaim it, but actually live as though it's true. To be satisfied with Jesus who gives us what nothing in this world could. Let's pray.